I'm uh, incredibly grateful as well that I came and the podium is already the right height. Um, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a lovely thing to, uh, to share not only podium size, probably shoe size. So if I need a pair of shoes, I'm sure I can borrow one pair um, with uh, my good friend, Pastor Brooks. Um, it's a delight to be with you all. I've been here before and it's always a pleasure uh, to be with you. And especially to talk about this particular topic, I'm going to get right into it. Um, and <clears throat> these are challenging times. They're challenging times for everybody, but it's a challenging time to be a believer in Christ. It's a challenging time to commend the Christian faith to people because there is an um, additional challenge. It's always kind of been there, and the text for the day, by the way, if you're going to look in your Bibles uh, uh, or your app or whatever it is, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 13 when we get there. But um, it's an extra challenge nowadays because of the perception of Christians in general and, Christ and Christianity in general as well, but any, any particular uh, strand of Christians, it's a challenge for all of us. By the way, you can connect if you uh, scan that QR code. We have some resources available for you, uh, some free stuff every month. We'd love to be able to help you meet this challenge. Um, I want to share with you a story that's, that's uh, illustr illustrative of the challenges we face in commending the, the Christian faith to a non-Christian world or an unbelieving world or a skeptical world or those who have been hurt by the gospel. Uh, it's a story taken out of Marie Chapion's book, uh, Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. It's an older book. It's a collection of various stories of missionaries who've gone to different countries around the world to preach the gospel in difficult places. And the story that I'm going to share with you is the story of a man named Yaakov. Yaakov is the sort of Eastern European way to say Jacob. So there's uh, a guy named Yaakov who is going to preach the gospel in what was then called Yugoslavia. And that country, uh, which had a history of quite a lot of wars and violence and these kind of things and internal strife had just gone through one of those unfortunate uh, scenarios where the country was war-torn, it was destroyed, and lots of things had happened from, from uh, women uh, being raped, children being hauled off, uh, pillaging of people's properties, you name it, all that going on. And the saddest part of it all was not only was this tragedy bad enough of itself, but those who were the, uh, the shepherds of the, the people in Yugoslavia, the clergy, the people who were involved in the church, they were some of the chief perpetrators of the atrocities themselves. So Yaakov walks into this particular context and he wants to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to people who have been burned by those who claim to speak for Jesus. And he comes across a man named Simmerman. And Simmerman has had it. He's had it with all things religious. And so Yaakov tries to say, you should believe in Christ and this is who he is and this is what he's done for you. And Simmerman said, look, I see these men in their fancy hats and in their priestly coats and these wonderful coats they wear, but underneath all that stuff, they're demons. My own son was murdered because of those men. Yaakov, I want nothing to do with this Jesus that they pretend that they actually represent. Nothing to do with this whatsoever. So Yaakov is not deterred by this. He thinks of something to say back, and he says, Simmerman, let me ask you a question. Let's say someone stole your hat and someone stole your coat, and they went and robbed a bank, and they have a similar build to you, and they sort of resemble you a little bit. And people don't quite get a good glimpse of the person, but they did get a glimpse of the hat and the coat, and they know it's yours. And so when they, the, the authorities ask them, did you see what happened? They say, yes, it was Simmerman. Simmerman came in here and he robbed this bank. I saw him flee. I saw a guy who looked just like him wearing his hat and his coat. When the authorities come to your house and say, you're the man, people saw you, eyewitnesses saw you, what are you going to say to them? It's a great question. 
And Simmerman knows where this is going. He sees what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, these men stole Jesus' hat. These men stole Jesus' coat. And they claim to look like him, but they're nothing like him. They did something in his name that is dastardly. He's not the real article, just like you're not the real suspect. What would you say? But Simmerman has had it. He's been so hurt. He's been so wounded by all things church that he says, I know what you're trying to do. You can just stop right now. This is an illustration, I think, of the current paradigm we're sitting in, in terms of how people are viewing the Christian faith. I have done open forums at secular universities all over the world, and I can tell you this, we answer questions over and over again about the credibility of the Christian faith. That's what the ministry I'm a part of does. We try to offer the credibility of the Christian faith to every questioner we encounter. And what I've noticed over the course of the years is the questions have shifted in what is now primary and what has become secondary. It used to be the case that the primary questions were questions of propositional truths or historical fact or whatever it might be. You know, is the Bible actually historically accurate? Did Luke get it right when he said Lysanias was tetrarch of Abila, or did he get it wrong, as some skeptics actually say? And we find out, yes, he got it right, but no one knows that. Uh, is there actually evidence for the existence of King David? And we find out there is evidence, but is there good enough evidence? Is there evidence of the Exodus? Do we actually think that science is putting God out of a job, that we have this theory of evolution, and the Bible says he created Adam and Eve, but we're actually thinking now that it's actually this thing that gradually existed over time? There's all those questions that were there. Fact issues, history issues philosophical issues, scientific issues. But the questions have shifted, friends. Those aren't the primary questions anymore. The primary questions are things like this. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? Doesn't the Bible condone racism? Isn't the Bible horribly sexist and treat women as second-class citizens? Doesn't the Bible condone ideologies that something, something aphobic? You know, these are the things that are happening now. These are the primary questions. In other words, what I'm telling you is, people, the culture is no longer asking, is the Bible true? They're asking, is the Bible moral? Is Christianity actually good? Now, logically speaking, you should go and ask the truth question first. Is it true? And if the answer is yes, now I have to wrestle with the morality, but people aren't doing that because people are people. We respond emotionally as well as intellectually. And so I think the task of Christian apologetics, and this is the fancy way, by the way, of saying defense. It comes from the text uh, we're gonna, about to explore, 1 Peter 3.15, within the text of 1 Peter 3.13 uh, 3, to 18. That word apologetics, it just means defense. It's a, it's a Greek word that means defense. You're not apologizing for anything. You're actually defending the Christian faith when you are engaged in apologetics. So the task of apologetics is not just showing someone why something is true, but why should, should they care if it's true or not. It's not just true, it's truly relevant, and it's relevantly beautiful. That's, I think, the way in which we can commend our faith to a non-Christian world, because they actually are being told, and they're given a steady diet of an idea that the Christian faith is actually ugly and false and not worth your time. So the challenge is quite there. In fact, one of the books I wrote, my most recent book, More Than a White Man's, More Than a White Man's Religion, attempts to answer the questions the culture is actually asking about race and gender when it comes to the Christian faith. We have to answer the questions the culture is actually asking, not a bunch of questions we hope they ask, you know, or the ones we've studied for. 
I'm going to tell you right now, apologetics has gotten a bit of a bad name because instead of becoming the art and science of Christian persuasion, it's simply the art of making someone else sorry they asked you. <laughs> because what you're engaged in is an effort to show them how smart you are and how maybe not smart they are, how wrong their worldview is and how you know, dumb they are to think that in the first place. Now, I'm going to tell you, I am guilty of this. Occasionally, I, as a human being, slip into this, and I'm sure any one of you can actually understand this and maybe even agree with me that you've done that because in the middle of the heat of a discussion, you slip into some pride because that's the insidious sin that we all try to battle with. Rather, what we need to do is have our attitude informed by Scripture and what we're trying to do um, uh, is present Christ, not present us. And that's really the takeaway here, is that in this world that's asking, is Christianity good? They need to see that Christians are actually good. In other words, when they see your life, they need to see Jesus, not you. They shouldn't be impressed with you. They should be impressed with the Lord you're talking about. And here's a reality, friends. It's not logical in the sense of strict logic, but it's logical and you understand this is the way people actually act. The credibility of the message, if I say one thing today, this is the one thing I want you to take away. The credibility of the message is always judged by the integrity of the messenger. Now liars can say true things. If Joseph Stalin, I heard a guy say it this morning, I was watching a video uh, this morning. Uh, if, if Joseph Stalin tells you that if you hold a ball in your hand and you let go of it, it'll fall to the earth, that's true. He's a bad person, but it's still the truth. So logically speaking, the credibility of the message has nothing to do with the integrity of the messenger. But if you're being told that the gospel is good news and you're being told that by somebody who has never been transformed by this good news, you begin to wonder, is it so transformational after all? And is it very good at all? We have to let people see Jesus when they see our life because the message then will be received far differently. So how does the Bible guide us? What does scripture guide us to do in such a context where it can be tough and hostile? And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, as we orient ourselves to the text, I want to give some context here. Peter is writing to various churches in various places. He's writing letters to the, to the, to the exiles of the dispersion, the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, Asia Minor, which is basically taken over by modern Turkey, much of which was in modern Turkey. Um, but in the middle of all this, there was tons of political, social, and religious conflict for the nascent church. It had just emerged from the cradle, it just emerged from the crib, and now it's starting to walk and stumble about in its nascent stage. And all these pressures are coming upon Christians where they're getting political pressure and social pressure and legal pressure and all these different things to conform their message or get rid of it, and in fact, be persecuted by it. They were experiencing real persecution. Now, we might be thinking that we're experiencing that in the West, but the very fact that this many people are gathered in one building in a free country to be able to worship God without any government interference already tells you, we're not being persecuted. It is getting increasingly difficult to be a Christian, but if you asked our brothers and sisters overseas what real persecution is, they'll tell you. Having said that, it is increasingly difficult to be comfortable and be a Christian, and that's not a bad thing always. A lack of comfort can actually urge us to do something about the state of affairs. I thank God sometimes for the way he prods us with actual prods, as opposed to just gentle nudges. 
But in this context of persecution, this is what Peter says to the church that is trying to spread the message of good news amidst a bad situation. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So he's saying, like, look, there's people out there who might want to harm you, but who are you to harm, who is, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? They won't necessarily come after you, but if they do, and this is an unfair world, and you will do the right thing, and you will get creamed for it, if that still happens, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is the sort of heart of the passage, that I, the three verses we're talking about, or four verses. But in your hearts, he says, amidst all of that, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, in other words, when you do the right thing, but people say you did the wrong thing, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You're going to do the right thing sometimes, and people are going to revile you and slander you for it, and you want justice on this side of heaven, but the reality is that doesn't always come. It didn't come for our Lord in the eyes of those who were saying, if you're the Christ and you can save yourself, come down from that cross. He didn't. He did it for a purpose. And it seemed like he had lost, but really he had won. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And having risen from the dead is a matter of fact, not a matter of mere hope. In fact, that resurrection from the dead is a fact. The apologetics that got me to see that was one of the chief reasons I became a Christian in the first place. Here's why I believe Jesus, friends. Here's why. Because he rose from the dead. And guys who rise from the dead tend to have credibility. If he didn't rise from the dead, then there's no reason to believe him. But if he rose from the dead, we have every reason to believe him and only him. The, the trick here, the trick here is in the text. The trick here is in the text. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord, in verse 15, is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's a lot that's really great here, and it could take a week just to exposit this one part of this section of scripture we're studying here. But did you notice something? You were to provide a reason, a defense, an apologia to anyone who asks you. It's an increasingly hostile world to a Christian faith. But if your life looks like Jesus, people will ask you, they might be hostile when they ask you. They might be interested when they ask you, but they'll ask you, or at least ask about you to other people. But about what? Did you notice in the text? About the reason for the hope you have. This is a daunting world with negativity just everywhere, all the time. And if social media is any, any barometer, it's not getting any more positive. And so here's the question. Do you have hope? Do you live in this world so hope-filled that someone says, what's with you, man? Lady, what's going on in your life? You have no reason to be this hopeful. And then you say, I have every reason to be this hopeful. Let me defend this hope for you. 
You can defend science and faith and how they, mix, how they mix, mix, mesh together really well. You can defend the veracity of the scriptures. You can defend the theologies of the Trinity and the incarnation and the cross, and you should. Those are wonderful, but what they lead is not to a set of intellectual truths that you simply assent to. All those truths lead to a hope you can live by. But we do it with gentleness and with respect. And in fact, we see this repeated in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. All. That's hard. Able to teach. Patient when wronged. That's hard. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That's really hard. If perhaps, perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that's not my responsibility. Thank God that's God's responsibility, but the other parts are mine. See, a quarrel is different than an argument. I can engage in an argument with somebody and actually have it be completely cordial, completely cordial. An argument is simply a set of premises or a set of principles that if logically linked together, lead to a conclusion that is true. That's what an argument is. You provide a set of ideas and if they're logically linked and if they're true, they lead to a valid conclusion. That's an argument. That is not a quarrel. If you present an argument and it becomes heated and you start getting involved in sort of a, the, the, the back and forth of making somebody feel terrible or responding when somebody makes you feel terrible, argumentation has left the building and quarrelsomeness has entered the room. And we're not to engage in quarreling. But it's so easy nowadays, friends. It's so easy because what we do is we polarize. What we do when we engage, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, by the way, and I don't care what your persuasion is politically, I don't care what your persuasion is religiously, I don't care what any of that stuff is, we are polarizing people. We have a penchant for wanting to do this. Social media has made, has like, the, the, the polarization issue is the human weed, and social media is miracle grow. <laughs> Borrowing that from a friend of mine. So we, have, we don't really need a whole lot of help being polarized. So what we do is we end up demonizing somebody else. Uh, we're trying to offer them the good news. Or they're trying to show us why things are wrong. And there's this world of demonization, but we're to act differently than that. We are to act differently. Read the, when you hear the words of C.S. Lewis, perhaps you can do some self-reflection on this. I know I need to. Lewis said this, suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper, back when people read papers. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it is the second, then it is, I'm afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. And he goes on to say that it will turn this world into a universe of pure hatred. Christians are responsible for doing this. Non-Christians are responsible for doing this. This is what happens. But if we're to be people of the truth, if we follow the one who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, that means that our way needs to be truthful and life-giving, not demonizing. We need to find a way to reflect Christ in our argumentation, in, in our lives, because people will listen if they see something different than the polarization. You'll stand out just by contrast to the world around you. If you can offer a Christian faith that isn't based on whatever 
polarization issue is the thing that captures the imagination for the day. I'm reminded, by the way, of Thomas Bracken's poem, Not Understood, thinking about why it is that we often miss the boat, or if we're trying to offer the gospel, or if we're someone who's a skeptic, and maybe this is you, by the way, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you haven't committed your life to Christ and you're wondering what this whole thing's about. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time and your faith is hanging by the thinnest of threads, but you're afraid to tell anybody because the doubts are creeping in and maybe it's because you've been hurt or misunderstood or whatever it is. Listen to the words that Tom Spracken says in this poem. He says, not understood, we move along asunder. Our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years, we marvel and we wonder why life is life, and then we fall asleep, not understood. Not understood how many breasts are aching, how many, uh, for lack of sympathy, ah, day by day, how many noble hearts are breaking, how many noble spirits pass away, not understood. Oh God, that men would see a little clearer, or at least judge less harshly when they cannot see. Oh God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another, perhaps they would draw nearer to thee and then be understood. This is the world where identity is the big, one of the biggest issues going on right now and people just don't feel understood. They don't even understand themselves. And yet, there's one who made them, who understands every fiber. And do we move with our paths along asunder as the paths go wider as the seasons creep? Or do we draw one closer to one another? Not necessarily having to agree, but drawing closer to one another so we can understand who God is and then maybe we and they can be understood. Colossians chapter four, verses five and six is the hallmark of how we do our ministry. It is the, the quintessential way in which we think about in terms of embrace the truth, how we do our ministry and commend the faith to non-Christians. Paul has this wonderful, wonderful things he says here, and I can go on and on about it, but I'll just be as short as possible given the time and how much time we have. Paul says in Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So that's the first thing you should recognize as you walk toward them, making the best use of the time. Now this is almost an inside joke to Mediterraneans because Paul says, make the best use of the time. Paul's Mediterranean, I'm Mediterranean. I come from, uh, my, my, my heritage is Lebanese. We're not known for being efficient with our time. <laughs> if you know any Lebanese, and if you're from this area, you probably do, you know it takes an hour and a half to say hello. <laughs> We're not great at this efficiency. It's one of the charms we have, by the way. Um, so Paul's not talking about be Swiss-like in your use of the hour you have. No, he's talking thematically. Paul is saying is that if you make the best use of the time by walking in wisdom toward an outsider is this, you answer the question they actually ask, not the one you were prepared for them to ask and then shoehorn that answer into the question because you happen to know a lot about that and you don't know anything about the thing they're actually asking you. One of the best things you can do to a human being is say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. You offer them the respect of saying they might know a little something more than you do, and that you say, I care enough not to give you a half-baked answer. I'm going to go find out. So you make the best use of the time by answering the question they're actually asking you. And then he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's remarkable. 
It's remarkable because this is what he, notice what he said, and by, you can notice what he said by noticing what he didn't say. What he didn't say was, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each objection or each controversy or each question. He didn't say that. He said, you ought to know how you ought to answer each person. Friends, you and I, if you're a Christian, and you have this truth that you live by, you're not in the question answering business, you're in the people answering business. Because questions don't need answers, people need answers, and they use their questions to get them. So whenever you answer a question, remember, there's a whole history behind why that person asked that question in the first place. And you honor them, you honor them by trying to find out, by listening first, so that your speech, when you do speak, will be seasoned with salt because you've heard enough and you've got the recipe now and you spice it just right. You need to listen to what they're saying. And by the way, when you do that, you'll find out the kind of person you're talking to. You see, when you're encountering someone and they don't believe the Christian faith, there's various people who, they come up in a spectrum. People are, people are spectrums. They're almost never one thing or the other. But there are two ends of the spectrum, I would say, in terms of those who are looking into the Christian faith or who, who, who've rejected it. They're skeptics and they're cynics. A skeptic is somebody who won't believe something until there's enough evidence for it. And that's fine, that's good, that's a wonderful thing because it can lead you to the truth. So a skeptic is somebody who doesn't believe something until there's enough evidence. A cynic is somebody who won't believe even when there is. And people slide in and out of being a skeptic or a cynic, depending on what you're saying at that particular moment. It happens all the time. Simmerman, who I mentioned in the opening, was a skeptic who became a cynic because of what had happened to him. We'll see if he stays that way. But we're very superficial in the way we, way we label people. We superficially say, oh, that's a cynic. Don't bother your, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time on that person. He's a cynic. Or, oh, this person's open. He's really, she's really open to this. She's a skeptic, but she's open. People slide in and out all the time. F.W. Borum's words are so good here to help us. He says, the fact is that we are too superficial. We glance at a man and at once tie an imaginary label around his neck. We classify him as a Christian or as a heretic or as a skeptic or as a backslider. And we think that settles it. But our work of classification is very much more complicated than we think. We forget that a saint and a skeptic can dwell together in the same skin. Lord, I believe, there you have the saint. Help thou my unbelief, there you have the skeptic. Same guy. The prophets love to talk of a time when the wolf should lie down with the lamb, but in many a heart, the wolf and the lamb dwell together even now. Great wickedness and great wistfulness often lodge in the self-same heart. Don't tie an imaginary label around someone's neck. You wouldn't want that for you. People are complicated. But listening, caring, making the best use of the time, walking in wisdom, and letting your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt helps you to answer the person who in that moment might be a skeptic and in the next might be a cynic and at some point might become a believer. That happened with me. It took me nine years of steady witness. And people would have thought, that guy's a cynic. I was a skeptic. But you, the, the trick here, friends, 
And what happened with me is that people actually presented truth in a way that mattered to me. It wasn't just an abstract intellectual idea that I could assent to and move on with my life, like gravity or quantum physics or, you know, literary theory. It was something that was true and then mattered to me because of the way I'm built and the way God has made me and the things I care about. People paid attention to that. Blaise Pascal, the brilliant Blaise Cat Pascal, basically paraphrasing Paul in Colossians 4, he says that men despise religion because they fear that it may be true. The cure for this is to show them that religion is not contrary to reason, in other words, give a reasoned response, but worthy of reverence and respect. And now listen to this. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. Make good people wish it was true and then show them that it is. Let me give you an example. I was sitting across the table from a young man, an African-American young man who had rejected the faith altogether. He was raised in the faith, rejected it altogether because he was convinced that Christianity was the white man's religion of slavers and that the Bible condoned slavery 100%, no bones about it. It's responsible for all the evils that have befallen African-Americans and people and minorities, people of color all over the world. He was convinced of this, but he was an atheist. And he happened to really have an affinity for a, a, a guy named Sam Harris. Sam Harris is an atheist who believes that we're all just basically electrochemical machines. We respond to external stimuli. We don't, in fact, he wrote a book called Free Will where he says we don't have any free will. Which my question that arises is, did you write that book of your own free will? Um, but he argues this. And he says, you know, there, you can measure morality through scientific means. But here's the thing I thought to myself as I sat across the table. By the way, this was one of the most incendiary topics you can talk about. And he was one of the most thoughtful and kind young guys I've ever spoken to. Tremendous conversation. I learned more from him than he did from me, I guarantee it. But I asked him, I said, you have a strong sense of fairness and justice, and we need that. That morality streak in you is so powerful and so important. So here's my question for you. If I'm a biochemical machine, and you're a biochemical machine, and I'm wired to respond to external stimuli in a certain way, and you're wired to respond to external stimuli in a certain way, and all we do, like single-celled organisms, which is complicated ones, is bump into each other, what's immoral about racism? How can one biochemical computer be immoral to another one? In other words, the thing that you care about, this idea of justice, is such a real thing. It's real, and you know it. But based on your worldview, it's an illusion. If evolution is true, then the strong dominate the weaker, and that's the way it should go. You and I both know that's not right. You know, over the course of a very long conversation, we began to unravel these things. In other words, I presented the gospel in the context of a thing this young man cared about. Three weeks later or so, I got a wonderful note in the mail that he was uh, joining a church and part of a Bible study. That's no genius on my part. That's the Holy Spirit moving. But it's also moving to show what does he care about? How does the gospel speak to it? And how can it make a difference? Does this work every time? There's no magic bullet, friends. But it did work that time, and it's worked many other times since then. I've seen it. And it happened, by the way, with me. People presented the gospel in a way that mattered to me. 
But you have to use not only philosophy and all these things, but you have to use the scriptures as well. Friends, people did that with me and I saw the beauty and the power of the scriptures. You know, one of the things that I think about the more I study the scriptures is how one evidence for how I know they come from God is how timely and timeless they are. 1 Peter 3.15 gives advice to people in the middle of persecution and it gives the same advice to them that it gives to you thousands of years later. I can tell you story after story in the Bible and precept and precept in the Bible that are, were applicable to the people thousands of years ago who heard them and they're just as applicable today, if not even more so. And so the timely timelessness of the Bible suggests that maybe the author of it stood outside of time and it wasn't just a bunch of shepherds, kings, and fishermen who wrote this thing. There's power in it. So may you never speak with lofty arguments in a closed Bible. That word has power. So much power, in fact, that it changes nations. It changed the Roman Empire, but it's changing things today. I want to read you a passage from an atheist named Matthew Paris. He wrote an article some years ago entitled, Why Africa Needs Christianity. He's an African. He came from a place that's now called Malawi, but it was called Niazaland when he, he, when he lived there. And he wrote about the things he had seen when he had visited Africa again. And he says, it confounds my growing belief that there is no God, but it's something I can't get out of my mind, what he saw. He saw the transformational power, not just of the helps of people who believed the gospel, not just of the food that was given and the vaccines that were administered or the medicines that were transferred or the dental work that was done. Oh, that's great. But he said, that didn't transform the people I saw. What transformed them was the gospel message itself. This is an atheist talking. Listen to what he says. He says, now as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings the spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Amazing. That's amazing. He should recognize that and yet still not embrace it. Who knows? Who knows? One story, and then we'll return to our friend Zimmerman, and we'll close. It's a story that circulated in the United States Navy. Maybe you've heard this story before. It circulated as true for a while. I'm not sure it's actually true. It probably isn't true, but it's illustrative of what I want to say today. <laughs> it's a story of these flotilla of U.S. naval ships that are crossing the North Atlantic. This is decades and decades ago. And they're crossing the North Atlantic, um, going west, dark, foggy night. And directly in their path, there's a light. And so the captain of the lead ship, the USS Abraham Lincoln, signals ahead and says, change your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. <clears throat> he gets a very informal response back and says, nope, you move. And so he's a little offended, and he says, this is the captain of the USS Abraham Lincoln. This is the second largest uh, uh, ship in the U.S. North Atlantic Naval Fleet. Please change your course, 15 degrees, that's one five degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Confirm. And the guy says, buddy, you got to turn. 
So the captain's upset now. He says, I repeat, this is the USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest battleship in the North Atlantic fleet of the United States Navy. I'm accompanied by five destroyers and numerous support vessels. If you do not change your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision, countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this vessel Confirm." And the guy says, buddy, this is a lighthouse. You choose. <laughs> Here's why I say that story. No matter how impressive the cultural powers be that are out there and how daunting it might seem to face up to the challenge and all you got is this little light of mine. If you're founded in a foundation that cannot be moved, you realize no matter how many guns, no matter how many media outlets, no matter how many whatever has come against the gospel message, it's just floating. But here is the more important message, my friends. Lighthouses don't exist to defy the ships. They exist to guide the ships to safety. So let your light shine, not in a way that makes you a winner in the argument, but a winner of souls and fishers of men and women. That's the light. And that the light is in you, it reflects the light of Christ. And so when people see you, they will see Jesus. And so we return to our friend Zimmerman. Yaakov tried it with him and said, hey, if someone stole your hat and your coat, what would you say if they tried to impersonate you but they did bad things in your name? And Zimmerman knew where he was going. Don't try it, don't even go there. I've been hurt too much. Well, Yaakov didn't let it go. He stayed with Zimmerman's family for years and he served his family for years in the midst of all that had happened. And finally, Zimmerman kneeled and gave his life to Christ. And he said to Yaakov, I now know this man is the savior of the world and I got there because you wear his coat well. Be a lighthouse in a dark world. Wear his coat well.